This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, your host, Tony Naylor. Alongside me as ever, I have Mr Tom Kerridge. Hello, Tom. All right, Captain. And this week we're joined by Seren Kell to discuss the future potential of sustainable meat alternatives. So, Seren, you are Science and Technology Manager at GFI Europe. So could you explain what that is and what your role entails, please? Sure. And thank you both, Tony and Tom, for, for having me on the podcast today. Um, GFI Europe, or the Good Food Institute Europe, is an international NGO working to build a more sustainable, secure and just food system through transforming the way that we produce meat. And so when you say produce meat, so what are you looking to produce that might replace the meat that we know now? Sure. So the way that we categorize these alternative or sustainable proteins is plant-based, cultivated or fermentation made. So producing it from plants, cultivating it from cells directly or working with microbes or fungi to innovate with our ability to work with plants or cells. So Seren is going to sell this to us, Tom, but lab-bred meat then, does that get your mouth watering? Honestly, I'm already lost. I'm entering into a whole world that feels like science fiction and chaos. To me, I'm like, what? How, how do you do? explain it to me? Like in layman's terms, very, I am a chef that left school with very little in the way of GCSEs. Explain to me exactly what you do. In my end, I'm going... You grow meat from plants. <laughs> well, 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 we'll go through each stage or each form of this in the conversation then. But maybe just to lay the ground before we get into the detail of it. I mean, Saren, if you could just explain why the GFI, uh, you know, thinks this is necessary and why it thinks animal agriculture as it's currently constituted is not sustainable going forward. You know, why do we need these alternatives in the first place? Yeah, so I think it fundamentally comes down to the environment 
public health and food security. So starting with the environment, especially greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, but also biodiversity loss, deforestation. Um, Industrialised animal agriculture contributes really significantly to some of these issues. So just greenhouse gas emissions, for example, it contributes 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Likewise, with food security, it's kind of an inefficiency issue. So, for example, chickens, which are the most efficient animal from converting calories in to calories out, it still takes nine calories in to produce one calorie of meat. So it's a really inefficient way to feed our world if the primary way through which we're doing it is this industrialised animal agriculture. I feel both Tom and I are going to learn a lot today. Tom, did you know that chicken stat, calories in, calories out? No, I didn't, but I'm massively, I, I'm now hooked. I need to listen more. I'm like, like I'm super intrigued now into going, uh, okay, so we all hear about it, and we've heard loads about it over the last couple of years, about how bad for the environment mass-produced meat culture is that we have across the world. Uh, how are you, or how are we going to solve this? I mean, uh, is it about providing us with alternatives or is it about changing uh, mindset, diets, understanding? What? How, how is that all working? So I think it's basically a combination of both, but we also have to be realistic. Um, we've known for a very long time, decades and decades, that we should be trying to reduce somewhat the amount of meat that we eat. But actually, the amount of meat that we consume is going to go up by 15% by the end of this decade. So knowing it doesn't seem to actually change behaviour. So we're still going up now, even though it's been... So we've known it for decades. And over those decades, meat consumption has gone up rapidly. And we're still going... It's still going to go up now. Why is that? Why why is it still going up? Poultry consumption is going up, I think, isn't it? Red meat consumption is going down. Is that right? Or, Or are you talking globally? Globally, globally. So especially in countries like China, for example, Brazil and India, where we're seeing this increasing middle class, that's where a lot of the new meat consumption is going to be. Um, And in terms of why, to your question, Tom, I think it's about accessibility and taste and, and kind of price and convenience. And those are the key drivers of what most people most of the time want to consume. And with it being true that alternatives to meat aren't quite there yet, it's a lot easier for most people to just go out and continue to eat the meat that they understand and which they taste good and which they know how to cook with and and, and know what they want to do with it. Um, Which I think is why really it's so exciting to be able to provide an alternative which will compete on taste and price and convenience and then we will actually see meat consumption go down in this kind of market-driven way. So uh, the GFI is pushing three alternatives, plant-based protein, cultivated meat and fermented meat substitutes. So of those three, just to be clear, the GFI has no interest in which one triumphs, if we can describe it in that way. And, you know, if you could just perhaps explain how the GFI is funded, I think that's important in this conversation because obviously, you know, you are here to kind of promote a, uh, you know, a a, a reduction in meat production. Uh, It'd be good to know where the money is coming from, from the GFI to make sure that, you know, you are an independent arbiter in this. Yeah, definitely. So we are an international NGO or non-profit. So all of our funding comes from donations from individual philanthropists or just normal people, lots of individual donors who care greatly about things like climate change and antibiotic resistance and deforestation, for example. We don't accept any money from either the meat industry or the alternative proteins industry. So we are not 
representative in a commercial sense and don't stand to gain financially if any particular type of product or company takes off. So uh, you are riding these three horses. Uh, you figure then they are the most likely to take off as meat replacements then. But as I say, you've no interest necessarily in which one will come out on top. No, um, we think all three have huge potentials. So plant-based cultivators and fermentation um, and we think it's quite likely that ultimately they'll appeal to different people and there's different reasons to be backing the, the, the multiple horses, as you put it. Baffled as you might be by the science, Tom, I mean, are you staying across innovations in this area from a work point of view? I mean, are you testing burgers as they come on the market, meat-free burgers and other items? No. No, and the straight answer is the way that we cook is we're always about the produce. Of that. It's slightly different because we're we're not about we don't do anything mass market. You know, we the hand of flowers. There's fifty people for lunch and dinner. It's 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 not as huge. We're, so we're going, and it's always about the prime ingredient of what it is. The alternative market isn't sat in our restaurant space right now. However, saying that the butcher's tap, the 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 kind of like the high streety burgery place, we have had a look at vegetarian alternatives or meat free burgers. We have had a look at the way that they work, but they don't quite work for us just yet because they fall apart on the grill. They don't cook in the same the protein structure of it isn't the same. So when you cook it like on an open char grill, it breaks up rather than sticks together. So we're not quite we have had a brief look at it from from just from that as a commercial point but across the board no we're not over this we're not on top of it we're not on the look however it isn't so I'm, I'm incredibly interested when you were talking about the three different processes of the three different horses that we're, we're talking about here the uh, backing of which one's going to make it through are there differences in the way that, that, that flavors tastes and their physical m makeup so that it, there's different cooking methodologies or alternatives to them so all three are trying to replace real meat products. So either things like burgers and sausages and mints or real whole cuts like chicken breast, steak, pork chop. How do you convince people that the steak is different? Like this is something, that, that's the thing, you know, how did, that's a prime cut of meat that people buy because they're eating a steak, not what it's flavoured with or not what it comes with. So how does that, how is that produced? So it, it depends on whether it is plant-based. I think now it probably is a good yeah, time for Yeah, I mean, why don't we take them one at a time? Because they are fairly different disciplines in terms of the technical detail, aren't they? So, you know, plant-based protein then, what, what, what do you mean when you say that? And are we simply talking about veg being used to mimic meat or is there something else going on there in terms of the protein content, for instance, of something, a burger compared to a meat burger? So it is, in essence, using plants and crops and vegetables to recreate actual kind of things that look and taste like meat, ultimately. Um, so the way you do that is you start with different crops, um, for example, beans, lentils, um, wheat, pea, and you work with those and work with food scientists and chefs to kind of break them down and reformulate them into things which genuinely recreate the experience of, of meat. Now, you were saying, Tom, we're not quite there yet. I think that's true. And that's why there's still so much science and innovation happening in the space, because there are a lot of things that we have to do to get plants to really be like meat when you're eating yeah. meat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's a very new space as well. It's it's only really in the last decade, I'd say, that different companies and researchers have been working on products which are actually like meat rather than 
vegetable burgers. Um, so it's really early days and, and the products are still doing well despite early days, but we're not quite there yet with full taste parity, I think. Are they fairly processed products? I mean, is this, you know, somebody, and I'm using a facile example here for simplicity's sake, but, you know, taking a load of lentils and creating something that kind of looks vaguely like a burger patty? Or are, is there a lot of science going into this in terms of the processing of the ingredients where actually you're extracting protein to do things with it which aren't natural is the wrong way of putting it perhaps, but, you know, are not things that are evident in their natural state? Yeah, so I think you have to think about like what is it that we mean by process. So bread is processed and yogurt is processed insofar as we didn't pull them out of a I field. I didn't say it was a negative, just no, no. a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I but I I think that not 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 in terms of the way you asked it, but I think there is a common sense that processing in and of itself is a really bad thing, but I think we have to be more clear about what we actually mean by that. So, yes, we're taking plant ingredients and scientists are working with them to really try and understand molecularly how do they behave and how can we recreate something that is like meat. But if you look at the nutrition of these products, they have more fibre often than their meat-based equivalents. So the burgers, for example, as much protein because you're starting with pea and soy and wheat. These these crops contain a lot of protein in them. It's just a case of getting them out and putting them into these, these, these actual foods. Um, yeah. So nutritionally, they are like for like, if not better at times. Pretty much, yeah. And you mentioned the popularity. So um, obviously there's been massive hype over plant-based food over the last couple of years, but that has many kind of manifestations. I mean, in, in, in the kind of meat substitutes area that you're concentrating on, kind of how well are things selling, how well are they taking off, and among who? Yeah, it's a great question. So... I can speak for Europe specifically. So last year, we saw that the plant-based meat market increased by 20% just during that year. And in 2020 and 2021, it was similar levels of growth. Um, We are seeing a huge amount of popularity. But as we were saying before, because these products, there's still so much, there's so much to go and still so much exciting innovation we could be doing with them. It's pretty good going that they are as popular as they are right now, given that there's still a long way to go for them to be able to compete with conventional meat on these kind of in terms of the experience of eating them. Does it feel that it's much popular, though, with a younger generation that are much more engaged as a, to, with, with environmental issues? And I suppose there has been a, a, a trend or a fashion for the celebration of vegetables and how great they are and move to veganism or vegetarianism, even if it's only for short periods of times or one day a week? Or is, is there much more of an engagement that it, from a, a younger generation as opposed to people my age who are, are kind of a little bit more set in their ways? Is there, is, is there an age difference? Um, yeah, there is. It's definitely slightly more biased towards younger people. But I think this is kind of the thing that we're trying to address here is if we want people to have access to meat alternatives, which are better environmentally and don't utilize antibiotics and are just generally more sustainable, that shouldn't be something that only a small proportion of the population is able to access. It should be there everywhere and people have the choice to have it and it's as accessible and and kind of delicious as conventional meat. So we don't want that to be the case, but right now I think that is the case. And how does it come in from a, from a cost perspective? Like like the 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 process it has to go to to get to that point. You know, th- there's a huge cost 
in meat production for particularly for quality meat production in terms of you know the the man hours the length of time the understanding the husbandry the care the whatever that goes to creating or finding the most beautiful piece of steak you can ever get that's why there's a cost element that is very very expensive what about the the cost element of that uh, i suppose the process that you have to get to to the end product there must be because there are so many touch points of people creating making working hard even though it's slightly different it's not about animal husbandry but it is about an understanding about the science of the process to get to that point there must be a, a cost level that's pretty high yeah so at the moment i think it's generally true that plant-based products are slightly more expensive than their, their meat counterparts and again this is something that really needs to change but i think that's really where the role of government steps in to actually help with the innovation and help bring those costs down so that they are accessible for everyone but we're definitely not there yet because it is still such a new space. Yeah, it's only early. It's only early days, isn't it? The more the more we understand about it, the more that we can become more efficient in doing it. The, like everything, isn't it? The the more practice you become, the more the price can get lowered and become and hit that market price. Do you think then, when it gets to the point where it is in a much more competitive uh, arena in terms of price wise and could become cheaper, much more accessible? than a packet of chicken breast or chicken thighs from the supermarket. That's when it's more likely to take off as something that is a real alternative because at the minute it's more money or, or around about the equivalent price. Why would you choose it? I mean, trying to convince people on an environmental issue is great and it works when you're engaging with that younger audience. But actually, you know, the one that will affect most people all the time is when it comes to a price point. So if you think when that price point comes to that lower one, is that when that you, you envisage the engagement being a lot stronger Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I think you absolutely nailed it. Um... Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. We know a quarter of people in the UK, for example, aim to reduce their meat consumption a bit, but when asked why they find it difficult, as always, well, the products are more expensive, and right now I'm not sure that they taste the same as the meat that I'm replacing them with. I think we can be pretty sure that this taste, price, and convenience framework really does actually tell us how consumers will behave, but right now they just haven't had the chance because those products aren't yet there. And again, that's the government question, I think. That's how we reach taste and price parity with conventional meat. Why is there a necessity to mimic meat? Uh, you know, I understand the necessity to eat less meat, but you give me a plant-based burger and I'm then going to make a critical comparison 
or potentially critical comparison with a meat burger. Give me a bowl of dal and I'll perfectly enjoy that bowl of dal in its on its own merits. So why why do we need things that mimic meat? Why aren't we just trying to encourage people to move away from meat being central in their cooking? Yeah, I think it's a really, really, really good and important question. But I, I think in an ideal world, most people most of the time would be having the bowl of dal. Um, but I just think it's not realistic. People have known for... 50, 60 years that it would be really great if they could swap out a fair amount of their meat with these plant-based or just conventional plants. Um, But it's not happening. And I think we have to give people something that they understand and that they're used to cooking and that integrates within their their kind of existing processes and cultures and recipes. And that's what it's here for. It's just making that switch easy so people can still use meat in the same way. But that meat doesn't involve the climate um, effects and the issues with the public health as well. Do you agree with that, Tom? I mean, you're encouraging people to cook more, but I mean, that convenience and familiarity point is an important one, isn't it? I mean, it's not one I've given much thought to previously when I've thought about meat mimicking products. But, you know, if you give somebody something that behaves like a pork chop, they kind of know what they're doing with that in a way. They might not with a load of raw ingredients. Well, that's it. I think that the alternative, the difference is we're not asking people to become vegetarians here. What we're asking them to do is have a look at their meat consumption. It's two very different things. I think if you're looking at just celebrating dishes for for the vegetable or for the fact that it it, it contains no meat, like a dal is amazing, beautiful, you know, fantastic flavours and all that. But then you're going into a, a world where you're eating methodology. The focus point on meals for many people is what is in that sandwich or what they have having with their chips and or what they're going to have with their baked beans and jacket potato you know the, what is on the side what is what is that main protein component so if that main protein component can be meat ish say that is an actual real meat but it still focuses them they don't count themselves then as vegetarian it just means that their consumption becomes less and maybe this isn't something that people are going to eat seven days a week but they might eat it half the time bring their meat consumption down by half and then still feel that they're not missing out and they're not becoming vegetarian they are just it's just sits very similar and the same i think you've got a lot a much bigger chance of you know a national global engagement into it because it, it, you're not changing you're not having to change people's eating methods or what they do or the way that they cook or the way that their their outlook on food is you're not asking them to make um choices that are um a little bit more, you're asking them just to make an ethical choice rather than one that is a little bit bigger you're presumably having to come up with meat-free dishes in your restaurants um you know what is the kind of starting point creatively there because you know i suspect despite what you're saying now and whilst i understand that in a domestic context you're probably not looking to meet substitute products in terms of developing dishes and you probably would be tapping into some of those cuisines internationally you know chinese indian ethiopian which have this kind of amazing uh history of meat-free cooking within them so you know i mean we could learn from that as well at the same time i think couldn't we i mean what what, what are you trying to do when you create uh, meat-free dishes flavor that's based around a vegetable and that's exactly what we we try and aim to do because we we're not we're not looking at a, a meat-free substitute because also you know sometimes people who are vegetarian or vegan 
don't want something that tastes like meat. <laughs> they want something that tastes like a vegetable, you know, they, 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 and that's very apparent. So most people that are eating in our restaurants now that are vegetarian or vegan are looking for a celebration of the vegetable, uh, a cel- you know, something that you can enhance, make it work, something that tastes fantastic. So, for example, at the Hand of Flowers, we do a beautiful kind of like potato pie that's being cooked, baked, layered, and then it gets wrapped in pastry and baked to order. And like it's a bit, so it's all about the celebration of this fantastic potato. It's very filling. It's delicious. The flavours that come through with it are amazing. Up in Manchester, can you bring those, one of those in next time we do this? Absolutely, please? yeah. <laughs> potato pie <laughs> sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> in Manchester, we, it's all about at the minute. It's globe artichokes, which are absolutely stunning. You know, in the kind of, so it, it's just trying to find the things that. Um, are are about the vegetable for for people who are not eating meat, but I I can see how it can. Listen, I don't think it's for near future in restaurants as being. Yeah, this is kind. Of, this is a. It isn't a steak, but you'll eat it like a steak and chips. I mean, it may. There may be a few niche restaurants that may end up doing it, but I don't. I think. I think short term. I think it's the same as every. It's it's driven by consumer, and until the until the consumer gets into buying it, restaurants won't start forcing things onto consumers because, again, it's a very small, cliquey, niche market that might work, might not. I think once there's the bigger picture, restaurants will adapt it and work with it massively. Well, strap in because this next bit is going to blow your mind then, Tom, because we're going to talk cultured meat. So lab-grown meat, uh, which rather brilliantly sometimes referred to as labriculture over agriculture. So, Saren, what? (laughs) Yeah, so cultivated cultured meat um, is the process of growing real meat using animal cells, but without the animal. So if you think about how we take cuttings from a plant to grow it in a greenhouse, it's it's a bit like that. So we take cells from an animal, we grow them in a tank or a cultivator, similar to kind of how we grow beer or, or yogurt. And within that, we give them the things that they need to grow. So the nutrients, the 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 media, the the kind of oxygen and the warmth and everything that they would have within an animal's body. And then with those cells, you then harvest them. And again, you're working with food technologists and chefs to actually create real new, innovative, exciting products that are actually meat. And where are we at with this at a commercial level then? Nothing's on sale in this country that originates in a lab. No? So the only country in the world that has yes yet passed cultivated meat through regulation is Singapore. Um, they were very early on this. In the UK, the Food Standards Agency, the process takes 18 months. It doesn't, it's the same process as it always is. It's an incredibly rigorous safety regulatory process. And to our knowledge, no company has submitted a, a kind of a, submitted a submission to the Food Standards Agency in the UK. So we're at least two to three years, I would say, in the UK before we're, we start seeing And where it. are the big centres of this? I hear about tech firms in uh, the US often kind of, you know, heralded as, as being the saviours of the world. Uh, are there other centres around the world where there's a lot of this activity going on? Yeah, so it's scattered around. Um, Israel has historically had a lot of activity in this space. Um, likewise, in the US, as you say, the Netherlands, in Europe recently, the, the Dutch government invested 60 million euros into funding research into cultivated meat. Um, And in the UK, we've seen a few companies too, but it's really early days. And actually, because so much of the activity in the science has been privately funded within companies, 
that's something that we're really looking to see change at GFI is this being something which governments are investing in and taking seriously and making sure that the public is involved in it as they can be. There is an important detail in here, though, isn't there, that needs to happen. I mean, critics of cultivated meat as, a, as an industry, uh, you know, the, their main criticism is that actually the energy inputs will be such that it won't make a difference unless there's a massive change to renewable energy. So there's a lot that needs to happen here, isn't there, before this becomes in any way tenable. And that's not to take into consideration some other detail, which, you know, without boring people listening to this podcast, you know, there are criticisms of this field that say that some of the claims made for it in terms of the way it will reduce emissions are overblown. So, you know, are we we putting the cart before the horses slightly? Is the renewable energy side of this not the important part initially? Because if we don't have that, then cultivated meat can't take off as an industry in a meaningful way. Yeah, so I can speak to the energy thing and then I can speak to the second point. So, yes, it's true that cultivated meat, when done at scale, we see significant reductions when compared to conventional animal agriculture, especially if we are using renewable energy. And that in and of itself is a really important thing. Because we're electrifying the process of producing meat, if our energy source is made up of renewable energy, which is something that we have to do anyway for our energy system, then we're going to see huge reductions. And that's even that's actually when you compare it with a really ambitious scenario for conventional animal agriculture, where they are making serious energy savings within that industry over the next 10 years or so. I mean, there is still science that needs to be done there, research to, you know, absolutely nail how useful this is going to be, doesn't there? And the key point is, without that renewable energy, it's not going to make a vast difference. So actually, even if we don't use renewable energy, it would still be significantly better than beef production is right now. And there would still be some savings compared to pork and chicken as well. But I think you do hit on an important point there with without kind of actually putting real investment into making sure that when this is done at scale, it's done well. And again, I think that goes back to government funding and government support because no one is producing it at scale right now. We don't actually have a really clear sense of how it would look at big scale. That's why it's so important that we're investigating it properly and making sure that real funding is going in so that it is actually done as sustainably as it can be. More importantly, and particularly for Tom, Have you tasted any cultivated meat? (laughs) I sadly have not had the opportunity to taste it. Um, Some of my colleagues at GFI have said it was really delicious, but I, yeah, I I have not had the chance and I'm sad about that. Um, Do you know how they're going to replicate the muscle density? I mean, you know, animals work, inverted commas, on farms. I presume it's technically very difficult to recreate that muscle structure if you're just growing something in a Petri dish. He said, knowing nothing about the science. (laughs) (laughs) I guess the first thing I'd say is that this this wouldn't be in a lab and wouldn't be in a Petri dish. This is in a big tank. Um, I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) You just want to pick a Petri dish off in a cafe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is scientifically really interesting, challenging technological problems we're trying to recreate because, as you say, in an animal, an animal is working and that work triggers muscle growth and that provides texture to the final meat that you eat. When you're growing cells in a cultivator, you need to replicate some of that. So you're working with individual muscle cells, but scientists are asking the questions, what is what does it actually look like at the cellular level that's happening in the animal when they're walking around and how do we recreate that? And then kind of in addition to working the muscle itself, there is this bigger question of 
texture and 3D structure. And we don't just want to be producing mints and sausages. We're trying to produce real whole cut products like steaks and chicken breasts and, and, and pork cuts and things. And that's where I think some of the most exciting research is happening right now. So using scaffolding. So for example, using things like algae and seaweed to produce that backbone that you grow fish cells on. And so the ultimate fish fillet would still have omega-3s and 6s in it and be an incredibly healthy, lean piece of fish. Um, but yeah, this is this is why science and funding and just more attention is needed because this isn't easy. It's not impossible and it's easier than getting to the moon, for example. But it's it's like real science that that needs work and attention. And potentially far more useful. I mean, Tom, Sarah mentioned earlier uh, needing chefs to be involved in this process to a degree to, to lend their expertise. I mean, can you see that happening? I mean, do, is it difficult to stay open-minded or is it difficult to be enthusiastic about this when fundamentally you have a product that works for your businesses at the moment? No, I... I I, I listen. I I think I'm fully engaged into where the world is heading towards, and, and the problems and the uh, that we're all facing, particularly um, uh, I, I suppose in sustainability environmentally. And, and you look at this, and you think on a mass market. If you think how many, I, I mean, I keep going back to chicken breasts, but how many chicken breasts are bought on a daily basis from the supermarkets that are just you know packaged together and done, and people just chop them up and throw them in a stir fry or whatever, like that market i can see that there's a huge scope for this sort of work i i think um the the, the bit that i find that just from a professional point of view that I, you go from my whole career you spend the time supporting small scale british farming uh, and then you look for this product that has grown and each product uh, that comes from its environment its terroir so to speak is it has has its own flavor profiles like salt marsh lamb or a particular beef or milk that comes from dairy herds or like all of these sort of things have they're a product of the environment that they're in which is a celebration of seasonality british countryside all of those sort of things that feel very natural um to what you do particularly on that top end space in that top end market where you're looking for product that's right there right now and has wonderful husbandry and has that kind of almost artisan um uh, touch to it where you know good food costs money because there's there's a human being that's looking after something that's growing you know all of this takes time and it takes effort and it takes energy the same as what we're talking about here it takes time effort energy but it, it's finding that what part of the market is it going is it aiming at replacing because it will it ever replace that top end bit of farming those the, you know the farmers that are producing quality quality produce probably not I don't think so. And should it? No, I don't think it should. I think that kind of, as we've grown to that mass market, as a globally we've grown to mass produced, mass eating, mass, mass, like this is a science that I think could be and should be very, very important. But I do think we're years, decades away from this being something that's fully immersed into us as a society. Did, did, did GFI worry about that? I mean, getting over as a first hurdle, the kind of intellectual dissonance of people eating meat grown in labs or however, you know, whichever option eventually wins out, um, that there might be a, then a two-tier system whereby, you know, people with money are still able to enjoy real meat. And if you haven't got the money... 
you are reduced to eating something which, you know, for argument's sake, we'll say is the, 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 the lesser quality product. Or is that actually not the issue that we should be concerned about? You know, the concern, it should really be about a movement away from meat consumption. Yeah, so I think the the first point to make is that we already, I mean, in the way that Tom, I think, was just describing, we already live in a two-tier system where actually the vast majority of meat that is consumed is not high-quality, grass-fed, organic beef. Um, so, for example, in Europe, I think it's 3% of meat consumed is organic. And for chicken, where it's the highest percentage, it's it's 5%. Yeah. So alternative proteins are not a silver bullet that's going to fix our food system as a whole. Um, that being said, it's not an either-or. And I actually don't think you have the land and the space to do the more nature-friendly kind of farming practices like organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture, that takes space and it takes energy and effort in the way Tom Tom said, and that, that's why it should cost money. Um, that being said, I still think governments, there's a role there to help farmers doing that kind of farming so they're not priced out of the market. Um, but it takes land and therefore it's not going to be the way that we are going to feed a population of 10 billion in the year 2050. It's going to be a way in which we can still work with the land and produce some meat in a regenerative way. But for the vast majority of people, they should still have an option which isn't bad for the environment and is much more sustainable and is as cheap and tastes as good as what they would otherwise actually be eating, which is industrialised meat. Um, so you, you're only really able to do the regenerative agriculture if you free up all the land through switching to much more kind of efficient alternative protein systems. So one solution, if GFR has its way, will be fermentation. So just explain that to us then, because this isn't fermentation as, you know, listeners to this podcast may have done at home then. Um, so it can include that. So traditional fermentation, like things like in the way that we produce cheese and yogurt and things like that, um, people are using that to create alternative proteins. It's quite interesting when you're fermenting certain kinds of mushroom, for example, the act of fermenting that is producing a lot of traditional umami flavors, which are then really helpful to bring into meat products. So that's one way. And it's the way that is probably most familiar to people. Um, there is also the kind of fermentation which people might have seen on the market where we're seeing mycoproteins, so a few big companies where people are eating things which are mycelium or basically mushrooms, and the actual fungus itself is the thing that they're eating. And we're seeing a lot of cool innovation in that space. And then finally, and this is why the fermentation category is quite a blurry category, <laughs> so it, it can be confusing. Um, and finally, we have something called precision fermentation, where you're using microbes to produce specific ingredients, which are then you are, can then integrate into other alternative protein products. So, for example, you have people who are producing real whey and casein in yeast, for example, to then produce real cheese, but made without an animal. Microbes and fungus are not words that, you know, trigger my saliva glands. So I think, you know, there needs the, some marketing work needs to be done here. I mean, you know, maybe some... cheese and sauerkraut are things that probably do. Oh, yeah, true. You know, <laughs> you know, maybe Tom has seen the future there unknowingly. You know, maybe in 40 years' time we won't be talking about farmers. We'll be talking about scientists and the craft behind the cultivation of some of these products. But going back to the farmers, so GFI doesn't take a stance on eradicating meat production entirely then and, and assuming it will decrease though where where are the farmers going what is their role in in your future of food production 
Yeah, so I, I, I think that's something that we need to be really clear on, that this is not against farmers and very much farmers are the key component that are involved in this transition. And again, it's kind of on governments to make sure that they are brought into it and are able to use the opportunities. So there are lots of things that we can see where there's clearly going to be a need for farmers in the future. For example, producing high value crops to go into plant-based meat instead of cheap feed to go to animals or producing ingredients which they then feed to the cells for cultivating meat or really high value livestock that contribute the cells themselves for cultivating meat. So there's a role here and there's a space here, but it's not going to happen by itself. It takes governments being involved and enabling that transition because it's a lot to ask of farmers themselves. It's just there's a role there. It's it's about making it easy for them to be a part of it and and that they can really contribute and that they are valued as, as a part of the food system. Would you be happy with that as a future, Tom, in theory? You know, less meat, better meat, less often. But if you think back to, we're about the same age, Tony, you think back to when we were kids, you know, chicken was one of those things you might have once a week, once yeah. every two weeks, and it tasted of something, and it was it was a celebration of a product. Not after my mum and dad had go at it, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of those products that was always seen as something very, very special. And the mince product is something that was always seen as the alternative, the sausages, the whatever. So from my point of view, that, that that's something that the mince is, and end up it is part of a waste product or something that comes from the alternative use of what once those prime cuts have gone. So if we're looking at a mass-produced protein, I, I actually on that scale, no. I, the celebration of great meat should always be there. It's something that's that it, it, you know, it's something that should be looked after, um, cared for. It, it, uh, the, the animal husbandry is so so important. Finding the best producers to who produce that stuff, that top end farming, is a celebration. I think that is a qualified yes from Tom <laughs> Kerridge, or certainly he's ticking an interested box on your form. Very very interested. Thank you very much, Saren. That was really fascinating. Cheers, Tom. Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode. Let's cook together. See you next time. Download the BBC Good Food app today and get inspired in the kitchen. Try a 30-day free trial to discover more than 13,000 recipes. Plus, as part of your subscription, you'll enjoy new ideas and exclusive recipes every month. The app will help you cook your best every day and build confidence in the kitchen with a range of skills videos and food masterclasses. You can organise your week by saving your favourite meals to make every day simpler. Plus, it's totally ad-free, so there are no distractions. Visit the App Store and search for BBC Good Food to download the ultimate cooking app today.